it looks like the world's going the wrong way in so many respects. But actually, underneath, I think the cultural fight back is underway, and we are, in lots of ways, uh, winning. Because I think we have the truth with us, and actually we have the future with us. And I think young people are realizing the hollowness, the emptiness of, uh, of the progressive offer. This century is not delivered for them, uh, and it's undermining their futures. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Conservative Member of Parliament Danny Kruger to discuss his new book, Covenant. Danny talks about rebuilding the institutions that sustain good society and says this begins with family life. I think we are in a state now where we've uh, dismantled a lot of the natural sort of regulation that sustain a good society, and that does begin with family life. Uh, so I regret what we've done to marriage as an institution, making divorce easier particularly, um, and abandoning any no notion of, uh, of what the, the marriage vows represent. And then fiscally, legally, making it, uh, you know, disincentivizing marriage essentially, and, and disincentivizing the whole business of, of family life. He says the government needs to regain people's trust after the COVID lockdowns. We were the representatives of the people and we had a voice and a role, I think, which we neglected and I personally feel ashamed of the behaviour of Parliament through uh, Covid including my own role in it so I'm working now to try and understand what we did as a country uh, what the government did and crucially what Parliament did or didn't do. I'm Lee Hall this is British Thought Leaders. Danny Kruger thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you Lee good to be with you. Your book, uh, Covenant, is out now, I think, required reading for people who are concerned about society. You talk about some of the problems we're facing and you offer some solutions. What are the problems that inspired you to write this book? Well, thank you. The, the problems are immediate and obvious uh, in terms of the state of our society, the precariousness of so many of our institutions and the systems that we depend on, financial uh, economic, um, military, ecological, cultural. And that's where I think the real problem lies. It's beneath the surface of our immediate presenting challenges, which are real and obviously concern us as, as, uh, as practical politicians. The real problem, I think, lies much deeper in a cultural mistake that we've been making that is actually an eternal one. I mean, it's one that's always tempting, which is to prioritise the immediate and the personal over the long-term and the relational. And what I think we need to do is to recover the roots of our civilization, of our culture, because actually that's what modern times demand. So I'm, I'm really not trying to turn the clock back or to try and re resurrect some imagined past. We need to lean into the future. There's a whole lot of positive developments going on. There's a lot to be hopeful of for uh, modern life in the 21st century in the UK and across the world. But in order to capitalize on those opportunities and to withstand these very real threats, which I mean, personally I, I'm very worried about many things, but, I, but in order to withstand these threats, to capitalize on the opportunities, I do think we need to recover some of the foundational principles of our society. And that, in a nutshell, is the principle that we depend on each other and that we exist in our relationships and in the institutions which sustain a, a healthy and successful society. And the, the essential institutions are, are families, are the homes that we uh, we attach to our neighbourhoods and our nations, and those three, as it were, tiers of human association—the home, the neighbourhood, and the nation—feel to me the essential building blocks of a of a good society. And 
for lots of reasons which we could explore, culturally, politically, economically, we have been at the work of dismantling the home, the neighbourhood and the nation over recent decades. And I think correcting course on those issues is the, uh, is the beginning of the recovery that we need. You've got one fascinating chapter called On Sex and Death. How has the sexual revolution damaged our society? Well, it's a really important topic, and we can tell it's important because of how much sex saturates the public conversation. And we're now in the midst of some very, very knotty and difficult questions around gender, sex and gender, uh, which I think are the outworkings of a, of a set of ideas which took root in our, in our culture in the West in, in, in recent decades. Uh, and I, you know, you can trace it back to to Freud and beyond that to Darwin and so on, and and, and Marx, in fact, and and particularly Marxists in the 1960s who developed the idea that in order to make the new society, they had to dismantle the home and the family. Uh, and the sexual revolution, while obviously had so many positive aspects and so many good impulses to it, uh, to free women particularly from the shackles of. Of a, of a, I think, an unnatural and unreal ideal of, of domesticity, which was itself historically anomalous. The idea that women had only one role, which was to bring up the children and to make the home. Never done that in history before. Uh, I don't think that is the right model. Uh, what we all want is to be properly attached to our homes, men and women, and to have fulfill a role in our families and in our communities, but also to have a fulfilled role beyond the home. Um, so while I understand the impulse to much of what happened in the 60s and subsequently, I think we are in a state now where we've uh, dismantled a lot of the natural sort of regulation that sustain a good society. And that does begin with family life. Uh, so I regret what we've done to marriage as an institution, making divorce easier particularly, um, and abandoning any no notion of, uh, of what the, the marriage vows represent. And then fiscally, legally, making it uh, you know, disincentivizing marriage essentially, and, and, and disincentivizing the whole business of, of family life. Um, it is much, you get much more, put it this simply, you get much more money from the government uh, if you are not, if you are, if you are living a life that isn't family oriented. So uh, you get more money to put your, if you put your children into a, a daycare rather than look after them at home or, or, or arrange for your neighbors to support your, your family life or elderly parents if they go into a residential home far away rather than support being, being able to live in their own home or with you as their adult, adult children. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, as it were, public services and, and, and systems in the tax and benefit uh, arrangements that, that, as it were, you know, dismantle family life. So I think we've got to remember the roots of things. Um, I also talk about death in that chapter. So, yeah, the Western uh, death wish. Yeah, sex and death. And yes, I do think we have a bit of a death wish, and it's emerging through, particularly through this campaign for euthanasia, which is gaining ground across the West. Well, in liberal parts, pockets of the West, it still remains, thankfully, taboo among, in most societies. Uh, and we haven't yet given in in this country, although there's a very concerted, very well-funded campaign for it. Um, and, uh, and what I worry about there is the idea, it's, it's, a, it's an essentially, um, I think it's a very destructive idea of, of the only way to live is to live as a sort of proud, independent, you know, fully capable, fully competent, uh, an independent adult, rather than as someone who's frail and in need. And I totally understand the, why so many people think that if you're in terrible agony at the very end of life, you should be helped on your way. 
the problem is how to frame a law that doesn't mean that the disabled, the, the lonely, uh, the people with long-term conditions who don't feel they have much to live for anymore, uh, would not be subject to pressure from, from I'm afraid to say, relatives, but, there's, but just the incentives in the system which say to them, as happens in Canada, of course, now a lot, we can't. We know the state will not pay for you to have a wheelchair ramp or a social care package that you need to sustain, you know, to, to live well. Uh, but there is this option that we can give you, and perhaps because you're a bit depressed, really what you want is to be helped with, uh, with an assisted suicide, and that is happening now to disabled people, to anorexics, to people with diabetes. And, uh, and if we think that, that won't happen here, well, I'm afraid it is happening in a country very like ours across the Atlantic. So I worry about, the, about the, 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 that, that, that campaign, and I worry about what we've done to sexual relations and to young people's idea of themselves. Uh, so we need to correct course on those things. Um, some of your solutions require the cultivation of virtues for people to kind of live by morals that have fallen out of fashion quite a bit now. I mean, thus upgrading people's morals is usually the work of a saint rather than a politician. And do you feel that government policy will be enough to bring about these changes? No, no. And, but, you know, government is, you know, politics is downstream of culture. And in a sense, I'm trying to intervene upstream of, of, of legislation. And I certainly don't think there is a that legislation is the whole answer, or, or, or even a large part of the answer in terms of uh, of these institutional strengths that we need of family, neighbourhood, and nation. But 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 it matters a lot, and and government and parliament and all of us in public life help to uh, create the, the the kind of cultural atmosphere that that is impactful. Uh, and as I've been saying, it does matter what fiscal policy you have, what your tax system does. You know, people do respond to incentives in the system, benefits taxation, public services are influential over people's choices. So I do think we have to think about what we should do. I, I guess my uh, a phrase I use in the book is this, that the purpose of politics is the cultivation of the conditions of virtue. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think it's the job of government to prescribe behavior to people, but what we can do is to create the conditions in which people are more likely to behave well towards one another, and which is what people want to do. You know, the, the, the people think of this as a sort of conservative, nostalgic, unreal uh, set of aspirations. But actually, most people want to get married. Then most people want to look after their elderly parents. Most people want to have a life that is connected to their local community. Most people want to love their country and to serve it. So, you know, patriotic, community-minded, family-oriented people is what we want. And it's what most people want to be. So I think that creating the conditions in which it's more uh, attractive for people to behave in those ways is an appropriate mission of government. But it can't do it, as it were, as the crow flies. You know, it cannot be uh, you know, legislating uh, behavior into, uh, into law. It has to, we have to be free. I mean, a, 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 if you're, if you're, a good choice that isn't a free choice isn't a good choice at all. You know, we have to uh, help people to make uh, decisions for themselves. And that's why I'm very concerned about an over-mighty, over-bossy, over-large central state. I would like to see the size of government to be much smaller, but it to have a much clearer mission and purpose, which, as I say, is to sustain those institutions of private civil life, particularly at neighbourhood level, uh, that, uh, that help us to do well. And of course, which then reduce demand on government, because why is government so big? It's because we have dismantled these natural structures that should sustain us. I mean, it's under pressure from modernity, it's not all government's fault. It's just the, the way we live now makes it hard to sustain these local familial institutions, and that's why we need. That's the that's the proper topic of policy.
to fix that. But um, you know, we are, we are must sad to say, we have dismantled many of the natural institutions that would support people, and government ca is trying to step in to the gap that's been left, and it's doing so, I think, ineptly, and in a way that perpetuates many of the social problems we are worried about, and it gets ever larger, and the tax take gets ever bigger, and the bureaucracy grows, people are dis disempowered uh, and frustrated, and then we have political upheaval, uh, which is where we are now. Mm. And society's moved towards transgressiveness, has kind of expelled some of the positive factors from human traditions. This has been going on for a while now, and some of the things we would have in society that create good people and a good nation have been kind of lost. Mm. I think at the same time, people's faith in, in the politicians have got somewhat knocked, especially with the lockdowns, etc. And how can we get people's belief in their institutions and their leaders and their, their society back? Yes, uh, uh, that is the grand question for our times. If we can't restore uh, trust and uh, rebuild the relationship between the governed and the governors, then uh, we have no society at all and we're in a very, very dangerous, dangerous place. So the answer to that is not, as I think many of the uh, the sort of traditional elite of our country imagine, it's to educate the public to like the government again. You know, obviously change the government ministers, get rid of evil Tories, but basically keep the system as it is and just get better people in and tell the public that your rulers are, are have your interests at heart uh, and they should trust the experts and the, you know the scientists and the and the ministers and the bureaucrats. Uh, I think that is the wrong way to do this. We need to reform those institutions, transform them, actually, and in many ways, in some cases, replace them. I mean, I don't think we should be wedded to institutions just because they exist. I think, as conservatives, we should have respect for our inheritance, institutional inheritance, but, uh, but, but they serve purposes. They should serve the people, not themselves. And so we do need quite radical reform. And, and the paradox I find myself in as a conservative who's deeply you know, tradition-oriented, I like, I like the idea of our, our inheritance in this country. Uh, I think we need very radical reform, and, uh, I, I, and that's the way to reconnect trust in, in it with, the, with the public, because they have to have something that is trustworthy. So I think you mentioned COVID. I think we, as a governing system, and that includes the parliamentarians who didn't take the decisions but voted many of them through, uh, when we were allowed to, of course, Parliament was totally sidelined in, throughout COVID. But nevertheless, we were the representatives of the people and we had a voice and a role, I think, which we neglected. And I personally feel ashamed of the behaviour of Parliament through uh, COVID, including my own role in it. So I'm working now to try and understand what we did as a country, uh, what the government did and crucially what Parliament did or didn't do. And I think part of that, I hope, honest uh, self-reflection on the part of parliamentarians at least uh, might be too much to expect the, the, the government itself or you know the, 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 the experts who delivered us COVID, uh, the COVID response to do the same as I wish they would um, but I want to try and understand what what we did where we went wrong and do that in an uh, open and honest way I mean uh, most people would try to do the right thing including you know Matt Hancock but uh, you know we, we, we need to be honest with ourselves about how mistaken many of those decisions were, uh, just in order that we don't do them again. So I think that's the first step to restoring trust, recognise what mistakes we made. The second is reform and, and building new institutions that are appropriate to the 
to the age we're in. Um, and uh, and that, I mean that's a, that is a that is a big drop, but it's important we have the conversation with the public that enables it. There'll be a, quite a few people who refuse to read your book because you're a Tory. Mm. But I mean, what you're talking about is not an attack on the Conservative Party values. It's an attack on the, the fundamental values of humanity. It affects all of us. Mm. How can we get over this di political divide that's been kind of drilled into the British people for so long? Well, I mean, certainly. I mean, if people, are so, if people won't read a book by a Tory, then there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, I mean, my loyalty is to... Uh, to the country as a whole, and and within that, to the conservative tra tradition. Uh, I think the Conservative Party is the is is a is a, is a protean uh, beast that changes shape over the generations. And I, I actually, I don't think the lo our loyalty should be to the party, but you know, insofar as we're conservatives, it's to the it's to the philosophy. And and what that philosophy is is, in in my view, is a you know it's constructed out of a set of loyalties and and. And, you know, affiliations to these institutions of home, uh, of which the nation is the essential one. And, you know, we need to get over, you talk about the political divide. Well, all people, I think, except the most deluded uh, globalists or transgressives, would dispute the idea that families, communities, nations matter. And we might have a different way of approaching those topics, and people on the left might think, have a different idea of how to sustain them and support them, obviously through more state action in their case. Uh, but we do, I think, even, you know, what I was trying to remember is we're in a culture war, we're in a very real conflict, which I don't want to duck, I think it's meaningful. I think there is a, I write about it in the book, there are two rival ideas at play in our civilization. Uh, those who believe in, in what I call the order, which is the set of institutions and habits that we've inherited that make us focus on other people and make us civic-minded. And, and what I call the idea, which is the idea of individual personal self-realization, that you are the god of your own life, and that's all that matters. I think that is a very real conflict that we have to face up to, and, 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 and you know, one side needs to win it. But uh, both sides, I think, have a common vision of, of what the good life would look like. It's a more connected society where we love each other better, and we look after each other. I don't know how you can do that as a transgressive individualist, but they don't think they know how you can do it as a as a traditionalist. So that's all right, let's differ over that. But we do actually have, a, I think, something in common in terms of the, what we think of as the good life. That is kind of universal, really, unless you're completely deviant. And uh, so let's not, so this cultural war that we're in, I don't think it has to be a fight to the death. I don't think we need to, you know, obliterate the other side. We just need to win the argument. Uh, and I think we are winning the argument, paradoxically, because in many it looks like the world's going the wrong way in so many respects. But actually, underneath, I think the cultural fight back is underway and we are in lots of ways uh, winning because I think we have the truth with us and actually we have the future with us and I think young people are realizing the hollowness, the emptiness of, uh, of the progressive offer. This century is not delivered for them uh, and it's undermining their futures. So I think we can win the argument if we, you know, if we frame it properly. Uh, but, um, but, but that's not to say we don't need to have a big ding dong with the other side, you know, with the with 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 the left liberal uh, establishment, which is gripping our institutions and our and our media, of course, uh, and I'm afraid a, a lot of Parliament. At the NACON conference, you said family held together by marriage is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society, and the Prime Minister publicly distanced himself from that comment. 
in has part of the Conservative Party moved away from conservative values? They have, yes. And uh, I mean, I, th I regretted that. I don't, really, I don't really think the PM can disagree with what I was saying. I don't think actually anybody does if they're honest enough to understand what I was saying. Um, so I was not saying this is the only model for family life, is the, uh, is the married, married parents. You know. uh, we all know families that are very different from that. It was very successful. So, uh, but I do think it's the basis of society, and I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, if we don't have a society in which most people aspire to and one hopes succeed in, uh, sticking with the, the, the other parent of their children uh, and bringing their kids up together, if, if, you know, societies that don't have that don't prosper, and parts of our society that don't have that as the essential underlying norm, all of us know, I mean, my own family, have got many examples of this. No, no, there's no uh, family that is this sort of stereotypical standard. Um, but, uh, but that is the norm to which we all aspire, and most of us, and, and it's right that we do. And I think government should honour that family form, that, that traditional family form, because if it doesn't honour that one, it'll honour the opposite, which is family disarray. And as I say, I think that's what we do do, I'm afraid, through our tax and benefit system and, and increasingly our culture. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's madness not to honour uh, the, uh, the conventional family model. And uh, uh, we've just got to find a way in which it's acceptable to say that without everybody thinking that you're being mean to single parents, gay couples, you know, other people who don't conform to that traditional pattern. And, you know, why should I, I'm not being, you know. So uh, there's, to, to, to assert a norm is not to say this is the exclusive and only model. It's just to say it's the foundational one that enables society as a whole to flourish. And then, and then families which don't fit that traditional pattern um, will themselves be safer uh, and, and society as a whole will be stronger. You and Miriam Cates started the New Conservatives. Was that somewhat in response to this rupture between the Conservative Party and Conservative values? Well, the New Conservative group is actually a group of MPs. All, we call ourselves that because we were all elected since 2016, since the Brexit referendum. And really what we're doing is trying to honour the call that the, public, the majority of the public made for profound change, a restoration of control to, uh, to the nation and, and beneath that to communities uh, and individuals. And I, no, I would actually d distinguish what, what, what we're doing with the New Conservatives from my book. I don't think many, all of my New Conservative colleagues, who, as I say, are all, you know, like Miriam and me, new MPs elected mostly in 2019, which was the second great, you know, cry from the public for change. Um, I'm not, I do, I'm not speaking for the for all our, our colleagues when I in this book. I, I'm speaking just for myself, and uh, I mean, I hope many of them would agree with it. What we're trying to do with the New Conservatives is to encourage the party as a whole and the government to reassemble the voter coalition that brought us into power in 20, well that won the Brexit referendum and then uh, and then brought Boris Johnson's uh, great majority in 2019 and that was a coalition of places and voters in places like mine in Wiltshire you know the traditional conservative heartland with uh, places like Miriam's up in, in Yorkshire on the edge of Sheffield traditional Labour voting place and uh, what was so brilliant about 2019 and 2016 was you know, for a moment you had a glimpse of a, of a one nation, of a national political movement, you know, l led by a very able and brilliant man in Boris. Um, the tragedy is that he, I feel, failed to deliver 
the promise that he stood for in 2019. He, did, he got Brexit done, for which he will always be the great hero, I think, of, of our movement. Uh, but after that, it went wrong, and the COVID response, critically, uh, was one, the failure to reform Whitehall, which was the real mission, you know, the real mandate that I think we had in 2019, which was to fix the system and fix the economy as well, uh, in the interests of people far away from you know, the financial centres of, uh, of South East England. Um, so there's much to regret in the last few years, but the underlying reality remains. Politics changed profoundly in 2016 and 2019. We have an obligation to fulfil our promises to the people that we made at the last election. We can still do that. We've got a year in which to do, do so. Uh, I think a lot of Rishi's instincts are really, really good, and he would like to be able to do that, reassemble that voter coalition. Uh, but I think at the moment we're not doing it nearly enough, and, uh, and, and time is running out. So the New Conservatives are a lobby group within Parliament uh, trying to push for a better policy platform over the next year and then a really good manifesto as well that, that tries to reflect the interests and the values of those voters of ours who uh, supported us last time. If you're confident that you can turn around while the polls are showing in time for the election? No, I'm not confident. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's going to be an easy task. I think we need to be very, very clear, you know, have demonstrable commitments, which includes, and this is what's so painful for us, particularly people who've been ministers for some years, you know, includes recognition of our own mistakes and how we haven't delivered for people. And I think the challenge for us is paradoxically, well, it's not paradoxical, it's just a very difficult challenge. We have to run against our own record. We have to say, you know, I think the argument I would make is in 2010, we came in with a very specific problem, which was the fiscal crisis in the public finances since the, uh, since the crash and Labour's reckless borrowing. So we had to fix the public finances. We can argue about whether we did that in exactly the right way. I've got issues with some of it, but the principle was we had to fix the economy and the public finances. We reformed uh, education and, and welfare in positive ways. Um, and crucially, although it was you know through gritted teeth and against all his instincts, we got a Brexit referendum through, and then we have finally, and with immense pain, delivered Brexit. So that's the positives of the last 10 years, 12 years. But actually, alongside that, we have neglected a whole bunch of things that we should have done. I don't think we should have accepted the whole human rights settlement that we inherited in 2010, the Equality Act, the Human Rights Act. Um, we should have turned the taps of immigration off much sooner. We haven't even done so now. In fact, we've opened them in recent years even further. But really, the problem began with Tony Blair in 2004. Um, there's a whole bunch of economic changes that we haven't made. We haven't, until very recently, started to try and level up the economy. Uh, and we've abandoned a whole bunch of cultural questions. Things have got worse on our watch, particularly in this whole question of sex and gender. And I think that in order to... We just have to be real. I mean, we have to say things truthfully to the public, which is these things have got worse. We can explain why, that we, but, you know, we can make excuses. But really, it's true to say on our watch, things have got worse. But under Labour, they would have been so much worse. And under Labour next time, they will get a lot worse. So the appeal that we need to make to the public now is we are sorry we haven't fixed everything. But you've got to trust us to fix them because Labour will be disaster on all of these topics, immigration, culture, uh, and the economy. So, um, but the challenge is how to persuade ministers and the governments to, to, as it were, run against their own record, against the inheritance of 
David Cameron and George Osborne did a good job in many ways, but really they just perpetuated the Blairite model. Uh, and Boris came in, I think, with a mandate to change that model, and, and, and we haven't done it. Uh, and we don't have a claim to the public support unless we acknowledge that we haven't done it. Donny Kruger, thank you for joining us on Precious Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.